there. So it was just mm. uh, two summers of being able to do that. It's actually good management, good life management, Adam, which, you know, is not something you'd normally associate with Adam Gordon. But yeah, no, I, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm certainly not got a flawless record on that, but um, <laughs> I aim to I aim to have one. Yeah, you know what? Some people do plan their lives really well. I'm really impressed by certain people that have a kind of like really organized where they want to be within a year, five years, 10 years, and they seem to achieve that. Um, and it just looks like, yeah, I just roll forward year and year and think, oh shit, I've done this in the last decade. Um, but um, yeah, I probably need to put more strategy. So my aversion to strategy, I just think strategy is nonsense generally, and that's obviously a mistake. Um, I, I'm an Everyone... anti-strategist because I can't strategize rather than it actually being an accurate assessment of things. Um, Everyone has a plan till they get punched in the face. Right. I, I repeatedly get punched in the face. So hence it's like, there should be no plans. No plan. Yeah. Just roll forward. Make sure you survive another day, you know? Anyway, uh, welcome everybody to Brain Food Live on Air, bringing it to you every Friday, no fail, even after a massive event last night, which I didn't get home until about four o'clock in the morning, so I feel absolutely terrible. However, however, uh, we're back with Brain Food Live on Air, episode 213, um, and today we're going to be talking about how to overcome imposter syndrome. Um, and folks, uh, this is a really um, pertinent uh, conversation um, because obviously I've just come from Wreckfest um, and this topic was actually inspired by some dialogue I had with first time speakers at Wreckfest. Um, uh, some of whom had came, come to me for advice um, or, you know, were uncertain about how they felt about it. And it became very clear um, that a recurring theme was that a lot of people were saying, you know, I don't feel I've got anything useful or valuable to say. Um, and that, I think, is a classic um, manifestation or feeling of imposter syndrome. So we thought we'd talk about it immediately after breakfast, which, of course, was just an enormously successful, triumphant event yesterday. Um, and even get a few people who were actually um, on stage yesterday to talk about their experiences. Um, and, of course... Um, imposter syndrome is not just about getting on stage, it's an example of that, um, but there's many, many instances where we might be doing things for the first time and we get this awful feeling that, you know, we don't belong. Um, so, um, so yeah, it's something that I think we should talk about. Uh, does it affect recruiters particularly? If so, why? Um, does it affect recruiters? Is it equally distributed? You know, do we feel this when we're younger versus older? Do we, do men feel it differently to women? Let's talk about it today. Um, so anyway, uh, before we kick off, let's do some sound checks as we usually do. I uh, want to make sure everyone can hear me on Crowdcast. Uh, this is version two. We're hoping this is going to be the new way we're going to do it. Uh, so if you can hear me okay on Crowdcast with my Darth Vader voice, yes. Um, <laughs> do let me know uh, whether that's okay. Uh, let me know in the chat whether the audio and video is fine. Um, we should be live streaming this on multiple channels. So uh, uh, LinkedIn, um, on Adam's LinkedIn, on my LinkedIn. I think Alexi's doing it as well, as well as Rob, uh, a few of the folks as well. If you can hear or see us there, do let us know on the comment thread whether you can hear and see us okay. We have had some problems with this. Um, I just want to check quickly whether... Uh, yes, we are live. Thank you. Um, I can just see it on the phone. Um, okay, we seem to be live and doing good, so that's all fine. Right, quick word to our sponsors, folks. We can't do the show without our sponsors stepping up every week and saying, Hung, yes, we want to support your terrible chat. Make sure um, uh, uh, this show is continuing on the road. Uh, this week's sponsors are our good friends at Greenhouse, uh, who not only were making amazing mojitos yesterday at their stand at Wreckfest, 
uh, but they're also one of the leading ATSs on the planet. Um, so if you want to check out or upgrade your ATS uh, from what you're currently using, Greenhouse are obviously going to be a product you need to be considering. It has been actually voted uh, the most popular product, ATS product, from brain food users in 2021. Um, we're rerunning that survey, by the way, so we'll see how, um, uh, how Greenhouse are faring against some of the other competitors in 2023. Uh, but they're clearly one of the top uh, products out there so do check out greenhouse if you are looking to upgrade your ats okay we have adam gordon with us adam really good to see you mate um how's things uh what have you been up to fella i've just been making videos about recruiter enablement i know you've been absolutely dominant it's been uh, by the way if people haven't seen adam's like relentless literally crank it out quantity over quality approach to video production which i massively endorse um, do check out his YouTube channel, which now has got 200 subscribers or so, I think. Um, why don't you share the link into the into the chat screen, man? You may as well do some promo on it. And whilst you're doing that, can you give us a quick overview of what your recruiter enablement is all about and you know why you're doing this channel? Yeah, recruiter enablement is about um, it's about all of the tools and processes and skills and content that recruiters need to do their jobs really effectively. It's, of course, a very fast-moving um, environment because things are changing a lot. And um, I, I started learning about it after spending um, the first few months in iSIMS with the sales enablement team there. And as I was talking to them about, like, how do we, how do, we do different things to enable three 400 sellers at iSIMS, I was just going, this is like process and we, we, need, to be, we need to be putting this level of um, like structure into how we enable recruiters. And I've just not seen many companies talking about it. Although I now have met lots of companies who are doing good things with it and they're using OneNote and they're using SharePoint and they're using Notion and they're using um, lots of different technologies which were not built for recruiting in order to um, enable their recruiters to be more successful and productive. And uh, so I'm, I'm interviewing probably about one person every day and, and putting it um, onto this YouTube channel. Just shared the link in there. I interviewed Manjuri Sina um, about half an hour ago and uh, that'll be going up later today. Um, and she's talking about some things that are really great. A lot of it's to do with learning <clears throat> and, uh, and competencies as well. So the difference between a um, early stage recruiter to what does it take to become a recruitment advisor to what does it become, take to become a talent partner and the sort of different things that you need in there and how they need to be enabled to do those in three distinct sort of um, sort of jobs. And uh, yeah, that's what it's all about. It's fantastic. I think it's really, really interesting. So, um, and, and uh, uh, these types of narrow conversations, I think are really powerful, particularly when you're speaking to so many different types of people. So have a think about this folks, narrow conversation on topic, but very wide distribution in terms of the types of people speaking on the topic. That's how you get crowd intelligence. Um, so really, really good effort. Uh, and I, I'm just a fan of I'm just a fan of the uh, the, the volume, mate. Uh, you know, what I mean, so I just get thrilled whenever you're chucking out more stuff over, uh, inflicting more videos on us. That's that's, that's, that's thrilling for me. Just um, just to be clear, when you say quality quantity over quality, I, I hope you're talking about the quality of the production, which is pretty basic, as opposed to the quality of the 
uh, information that's coming through from my guests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I totally. think that's high, high quality stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is when I, when I, when I, when I kind of talk about quality, I mean, all of the polish is not there. So I'm, I'm a, I'm a street food man. I'm a street food man, not a fine dining man. So you know, I yeah. prefer the stuff out of the, uh, out of the street, um, and and hence that's high volume stuff. So I, I prefer my content that way in the same way I prefer my burger that way. So yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> all right. Anyway, let's just uh, let's get on with it, mate. Um, let's review the newsletter real quick. Um, give us a couple of things that you read that you were interested in from last week, fella. This is the first time you didn't ask me if I'd read in like three years or whatever we've been doing this together. This is the first time you didn't ask me if I read it. So it'd be great if I just said no. Yeah, I didn't read it this week. Yeah, and you did, know what? You're you're entitled to actually say that. So I'm wait, I'm I'm kind of not prepared for that moment. Um, but you are entitled to say that one po- at some point. So uh, I, that's anyway. the point. I get fired probably. <laughs> <That's it>. Okay. <laughs> So I want to start with two surveys. The first one was the IBM survey, which was CEO decision-making in the age of AI. It was a study of 3,000 CEOs. Mm. Um, And the highlights were 44% of CEOs regret a publicly delivered message um, over the last three years based on what they now know about... Um, artificial intelligence and what it's going to be capable of doing and how fast. Mm, so what does that what does that mean exactly? Explain. It, well, it means they've said something like AI, AI is not going to take job take our jobs when actually they're now going. Yeah, it's definitely going to take our jobs. Wow. Or they've okay. said AI is mm. definitely not going to be the big thing within our industry when they're now going in every industry. Yes, mm. AI is going to change everything. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's you know public statements that have probably been forty four percent of CEOs have said something publicly that they now regret uh, based on the data they've got and the information they can see like in front of their eyes yeah. and the distribution and accessibility of artificial intelligence. A couple of other important points in here. So three quarters of CEOs believe that the organization with the most advanced generative AI is going to win in their industry. I mean, three quarters are, are saying that's pretty big. It's pretty big news, I think. Um, despite that, only, I think it was 29% maybe of, um, executive teams, not the CEO, but the rest of the executive team actually believe they've got the in-house capability to deploy generative AI effectively. Um, and you made a comment on this, which was like, uh, in TA and HR, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna be forced to, we're, we're going to be, we're going to be using it. We're going to be running a lot of our work on generative AI. And uh, if we don't lead in this, we're going to have it put on us. And I really believe that the people in talent acquisition who are going to lead their organizations with bringing it into their teams are the ones who have got great futures. And the people who have it forced upon them are more likely to be the ones who are going to be finding their career a a a bit more challenging. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I'm obviously CEO stuff, but I think it's important for us recruiters to pay attention to what CEOs are actually thinking and doing and what they're reading and consuming, um, because they're obviously the ones who will make top-down decisions. Um, and if they are now moving to the position where they believe that AI enablement is actually key to their own competitiveness as an organization, they will force all of their senior exec team to say, right, we need to see this happening in your department. Um, so if your CEO has not said this to you, they will at some point. Um, and it makes more sense for you to basically position the TA department or the HR department 
in advance of that, uh, we can get ahead of the instruction, basically. Um, and I think that puts TA and HR in a very powerful position um, if you uh, compared to if you didn't do that. In fact, I wouldn't surprise me if uh, CEOs start like comparing the speed of AI enablement amongst their departments and then using that to, to, to assess the leadership capability of the people leading those departments. Absolutely. I would not uh, be surprised at all. And in fact, if I was CEO, I would probably be doing that. Yeah, you do. Think about it, guys. If you're running your own business, wouldn't you want your entire team to be on this? Um, so we cannot be having the denialist position on AI. We have to dive in. And I'm addressing particularly the leadership um, in TA and HR, which I think is still the most distant from the tooling compared to individual contributors who are at least playing with it. So we have to play with it. Um, okay. So, okay. Um, other end of the spectrum now, um, workers. Uh, PwC's mm. annual um, workforce hopes and fears survey. We actually talked about this one this time last year, I remember. But anyway, a few changes now. So um, one third of workers say that their company won't be economically viable in 10 years if it doesn't change course. Um, that is actually slightly less than the, than the number of CEOs. Like 40%, 39% of CEOs say their company won't be economically viable if it doesn't change course. Um, however, if you look at the different like um, uh, demographic cohorts, you find Gen Z, 49% of Gen Z, like half of Gen Z say their company won't be economically viable if it doesn't change course, uh, mm. which is quite interesting. 26% um, of people said they're likely to change jobs in the next 12 months. And PwC has positioned that as if, that means big turnover, lots of stuff happening. But actually, I wonder how frequently do people change jobs? Do they change jobs less than once every three years anyway, do they not, on average? So 26% doesn't sound high to me. Apparently, it was only 19% the year before. But if you look at Gen Z, who are presumably moving jobs a bit faster as they get up the career ladder more quickly, it does jump from 26% up to 39% of Gen Z who said that. Yeah. Um, the the one that the one that was really most um, disturbing, but not particularly shocking to me, was that fifty six percent of people um, say that after they've paid their bills, they they well, they either are struggling to pay their bills, or after they've paid their bills, they they don't really have any money. Mm. Um, How many was that? Fourteen percent. Fourteen percent said they struggled to pay their bills. Yeah. Another 42% said after they have paid their bills and their essentials, they've not really got anything left over. That's really this bad. Is, this is really bad. Um, yeah. It links to, it, 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 it semi-links to the, the next point, which is about skill and equity. So 53% said that they need specialist skills to do their job. Um, but for those who don't say they need specialist skills, that's 47%. They can't see how their skills are going to change. And there is a, almost all of those are in that 56% who have nothing left over um, after they've paid their bills and essentials. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I think we should be very concerned about the gap um, between, pe between people who have got money left over at the end of every month and the people who, who don't. And 
what's going to happen with 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 this workforce because they can't see that their skills are going to develop um and as we know we talk about this every week on this show um the pace of technology change means a lot of tasks which lower skilled workers are doing just aren't going to exist yeah that that's one of the things i'm a bit pretty i'm going to bring the ai argument back in here i'm one of the obviously an ai evangelist generally i think we need to dive in as we talked earlier um, but at the same time, we also need to think deeply about the implications of AI enablement, um, which ultimately means job displacement. Um, and then what do we do about that? Um, and hence, that's why I'm kind of making the case that we shouldn't be looking at job displacement as any kind of objective. Uh, but in fact, we need to do the job. We need to do the work distribution across more people um, so that we might be working less. So in other words, four day week is what I'm talking about. Uh, rather than chopping, it says, keep 100 people employed, do, do them all four-day week, rather than, you know, chop down to 80 people, let's say, on five-day week, is what I'm trying to say. Um, and with AI enablement, you might actually have uh, the same, if not more, productivity with that sort of workforce. Um, it doesn't make sense if your uh, kind of uh, unit of analysis is purely what is good for the company. Uh, I agree, it's not necessarily good for the company, um, but our unit of analysis has to be what is good for the people. Um, because we cannot go forward in a situation where ultimately you will get an AI-enabled entrenched elite that capture all of the value and then an increasing number of people that are literally locked out of economic, uh, the, the, uh, the economic system because they don't have valuable skills to deploy into the marketplace. That's not a world that's going to be happy for anybody. Um, and we need to arrest that. And we need to be kind of very conscious of this, even as we do AI accelerationism. Um, so that's this point I'm, I'm going to uh, kind of make a little bit more powerfully, I think, and more publicly going forward. I think it's very important we talk about it. Anyway. It's funny you mentioned that. The, um, I, I've been driving through Geneva a couple of times recently. It's just around the corner. And in fact, right now, the AI for Good Global Summit is on um, in Geneva. It was yesterday and today. Um, I should have done my best to try and uh, get along there. but Yeah. There'll be all kinds of crazy things happening in Geneva, isn't it? It's UN's based there, I believe. One of the big UN centers are there. So um, World Health yeah. Organization. That's it. My yeah. mate Pierre lives there with his uh, lovely wife and family. So um, you know, go and say hi. Uh, anyway, give us one okay. more. Um, right. Another one that's a little bit concerning. Um, I've got a lot of respect for the teaching profession. Um, mm. And uh, here was an article all about uh, people who have left teaching and what was life like for them afterwards and how did they feel about it and whatever. Um, and much as it's based on, it's entirely all about people in the US, I think it certainly um, would be the same in the UK and very likely other countries as well. So some of the um, some of the highlights from this, in the US alone, there's tens of thousands of teaching jobs vacant currently, uh, while 55% of teachers in the US are considering leaving the profession earlier than they had planned. And that's more than double the number uh, reported three years ago. So there's a very, very big increase in worker apathy or um, uh, like, like engagement is rock bottom by it's, the sounds of things. It's a bad job, I'm afraid to say. I mean, you talk about working conditions being a teacher is a bad job it's well underpaid that's true in almost every every country 
the classroom size is too big. So all you're doing is management of, 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 of wrangling the kids rather than teaching. Um, and your, the, the respect level of the teaching profession has really just been on the declining phase. 200 years ago, 150 years ago, teaching was up there as like one of the premium yep. professions. Yeah, up um, with doctors and, now, and things. Yeah, absolutely. Now you speak to anybody, oh, I want to be a teacher. You look at them and you know it's not a high status job anymore. So is it any surprise people want to now move out of it? Um, and what does that even mean for, for the future of education? You know, so yeah. Very, very scary for the future of education. It needs to change. There needs to be a big change. Either salaries need to go up considerably or... Um, there needs to be a, a, a lot done to redress the ba like the balance of uh, the ratio of teachers to to pupils students. Um, yeah, there's more there's more burnout in um, teaching, uh, as in I don't know they call, I can't remember what they call it in America, but basically what we know as school. Uh, yeah. Like uh, you know, uh, there's more burnout in the teaching profession than in any other profession in the United yeah. States. Yeah, um, and it's it's got to be one of the hardest jobs as well. I mean, I, I think everyone loves to teach. I feel I feel everyone loves to impart knowledge to other people. That's very receptive, but it's how you do that to let's say an apathetic class, or how you do that to you know encourage people that might be hostile or resilient to it. That's very very difficult. Um, and Sarah, I just noticed your comment there. That's really disturbing to see because um because yeah, absolutely. I think male teachers, particularly, it's certainly becoming a feminized uh, profession as a as the time seems to go on so why why is that happening who knows you know steve's um, point is also really valid um summers off just means a different job over this season for supplemental income that was mentioned in the article as being i think one in five have got a side gig doing either mm. private tutoring or or something like that or it might even less than that more sorry, more than that more than one in five but interestingly as well like most of them said they i think they all said actually life is now better for them now that they're not in the profession however they do feel like their life's calling was to be a teacher. And mm. if they, if things were different, if the circumstances were different, they would have, they wouldn't have left in the first place. They'd have gone back. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's really concerning. It's a really interesting article. It's a tough read. I do recommend you read it though, folks, because it is two reasons why. Number one, we need to be aware of the teaching profession and try and, you know, again, start the argument how, how to, how to revalue that profession. Um, but secondly, it's all also about career change, isn't it? It's about, okay, how do you do a career change? I know a lot of people might be thinking about that. We all need to be career agile, in my view, irrespective of whatever passions we might have, just to be sensible. We need to understand, okay, where do we need to, to, to kind of uh, plow our furrow, so to speak. Um, but it was really quite interesting to see how some of those people then responded, having left the teaching profession and not necessarily found, you know, a Nirvana experience, even though, as you say, Adam, the job conditions were better, uh, but they're, they're now doing things that they that generally don't enjoy. And it's, it's, sim it's simply uh, a means to an end um, and going back again to, you know, paying the bills type of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, my sister's a teacher and uh, I've often talked to her about what would the, you know, what would the alternatives sort of be if, and um, the, the, there's a few things in there. I mean, you know, learning, instructional design you know those types of things um there's this there are quite a lot of things that are transferable See? skills however are our talent acquisition people who are hiring an instructional designer into a financial services company going to look at a teacher's application and consider that to be you know a good fit <laughs> only if they've got 
Mate, teachers are very highly educated. Another thing we need to think about, they're educated workforce. Um, uh, they're often university graduates, right? They, they've got like highly skilled, they just deployed in a, a, an area of work <clears throat> that doesn't sort of seem obvious to be deployed in different places. But I'm pretty certain um, that you would be able to uh, to cross-train cross, cross train teacher, teachers um, into most white-collar professions if they so wanted to. Many, um, yeah. So, and vice versa. It probably would be a healthy thing if there was actually flow between a to and from professions uh, so that we could get a, a richer uh, uh, sort of a mix of, of talents in different jobs. So hopefully we'll be able to see that one day. Anyway... Um, let's get on with it, mate. We're going to be talking imposter syndrome. Um, Adam, before we bring our guests on to talk about this, let's talk about our own views on imposter syndrome. Um, what do you think of this phenomena? Is it a phenomena? Um, is it something that, um, or how would you describe it as a thing? I mean, uh, uh, what's your view of, of it? Um, well, so first of all, I've never had it. Um, so I'm certainly not talking from experience. However, I do know lots of people who have, and I have spoken to them about it. It to me, it seems like a limiting belief, um, and I've certainly got plenty of limiting beliefs. Imposter syndrome is not not part of it, but I've got lots and lots of other limiting beliefs. Those um, limiting so, beliefs are called accurate analysis, Adam. But uh, go on. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe some of them. Um, and um, I, I, I think that from from what I can see, it certainly ha- it certainly impacts women more than men. From what I see, however, that may be just women actually talk about it and men don't typically. And the other thing that I've seen is it's very much um, it's, it's it's very much linked to like as you go up the it, it actually affects very successful people a lot because they get promoted, they get promoted, they get promoted a succession of promotions very quickly. They got the ladder very quickly, and then they look down and go, "Gosh, I was five jobs down there three years ago. Have I got the?" have I got have I got the right to be here should I be here or have I just winged this you know um so I'm looking forward to hearing what our guests uh, have got to have got to say Yasmin said the term was coined to talk about high achieving women yep yeah so it's Ho- hopefully yep. by hopefully by those women about their own experience rather than it was something that men brought up to say about high achieving women who knows, Yasmin? It'll be interesting to see what the who did the coinage and where it actually first came up. But it is resonant in many respects. Uh, I like the idea that it is particularly only affecting people that have actually succeeded, right? Because if you uh, if you're just trundling away doing like mediocre stuff, and that's totally okay, by the way. No, no, no issue with just going and doing a job or doing whatever you're doing with no change over time. Guess what? You're not gonna feel imposter syndrome because you're not you're not moving forward. Uh, so this is a phenomena that really exists as you're moving up or, uh, uh, your career ladder and it's self-sabotage um, to say, you know what, do I really belong here? Uh, should I really be doing this? Um, and then you kind of like moderate your own behavior and it drags, drags yourself down. There's a psychologist called Willie Raylow that talks about this um, on elite sports and it's a really good, uh, we'll talk about it as we get our guests on, but I think it's about almost having um, uh, you know what the lower spar is before you basically have anxiety because you feel like you don't belong. Um, but listen, I'm going to bring on um, all of our guests, not uh, sort of not one at a time. But I'm bring on Lauren first, Lauren Harrop, because she just come from Redfest, so I don't want to completely strain her uh, by saying right, spend a half an hour and talk all the way through it. But she's just fresh from her debut talk, so let's do this. 
uh, and see what Lauren's got to say on the matter. Um, oh no, how do I actually invite people here? Um, bear with me, Lauren. Um, uh, there is a new interface um, that, oh, there we go, that I'm simply not familiar with. By the way, here's a criticism of Crowdcast Louise. Like, I can't like generate the list of people I can invite. I can only see sort of uh, the, the 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 avatars and just click on buttons. So it looks like I can only select like 20 people. Um, whereas in fact, there's like 100 people watching this. So um, we should be able to. I don't know. That's an interface thing. Hopefully, we can fix it. Um, all right. Well, Lauren's going to come on in a bit. I'll be excited to hear uh, about how she did in this talk, or, her, or should I say, her own assessment. Um, as the how those talks went. Um, and there she is. Hello, Lauren. Oh, Lauren, you're, you're on mute, I believe, or for some reason we can't hear you. Can you have a look to see why that is? Hmm. Why should I, why should I uh, sort of sort that out, Lauren? No, we can't hear you, I'm afraid. Maybe it's the earphones. You plug them out and plug them back in. Oh, definitely earphones, yeah. I think if you take the earphones out, we can hear you. Can you come? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Cool, thank you. Cool, cool. So how, firstly, well done um, on your experience. I hope you enjoyed the event yesterday, Lauren. Oh, it was amazing. Um, I think, like, massive shout out, though, to the RecQuest community there that kind of set you up to get yourself on stage and build you up and encourage you with it. Um because actually that imposter syndrome kind of set in for me before going on as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was absolutely amazing. Fantastic stuff. Um, and Lauren, very quickly intro yourself. Like, who are you, what is you do? Um, so I am actually a talent acquisition partner covering the international region. And I work for an education technology company called D2L, which interestingly enough, Adam and Hung, as you were talking about teachers, we actually favor teachers coming to our business because they're using our technology in the classrooms primarily. Um, so they're so, ideal recruits for you to be ex-teacher, yeah? Yeah, so as you were talking, then I was sat there going, this is great for us and perfect timing for me to be here. Um, <laughs> so yeah, every time I have a teacher reach out or it, they come into so many different areas of our business, it, it's great because they, they know our key customers effectively. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've been in recruitment for nearly 14 years and um for me this topic is a hot topic it's one i've felt and one that i think hasn't been spoke about enough in all honesty and when i reached out to breakfast and said hey i want to talk about it I, I half expected them to say no it doesn't exist so when they said yes let's have a chat i was thinking oh i've actually got to do this now um and it's definitely one that as we've spoken to other recruiters particularly over the last 24 hours is very, very much a hot topic and people are feeling it. Tell us about what, so, so your, your talk was actually about imposter syndrome and it was your first talk as well, wasn't it? So it was kind of like you were almost like overcoming what you <laughs> the, the phenomena uh, by being on stage. Let's deal with that first of all, yourself, your own experience of delivering that speech, Lauren. Can you tell, take us through what your emotional kind of uh, a state was uh, as you were about to come on and, and how did you feel as you were delivering it and how did you feel after you finished? Um, I'm probably going to take a step before even coming on. I'm actually going to go the night before um, because I actually sat on my bed the night before and thinking, how do I get out of this? I can't do this. Um, 
And I'd got the voice in my head going, oh, people aren't going to believe you. Who's going to trust you? And why are you talking about this? Um, and I kind of sat there and went, right, I'm just scrapping everything I've done. I scrapped my presentation. I scrapped my script, my notes, everything. Um, fast forward through to breakfast. I joined the tent, saw the lovely ladies that were supporting me. They really gave me some encouragement. And I said, I was so nervous. I'm really, really nervous. And they were trying to reassure me by saying, people are interested in this. And I could see more and more people coming in. And I was a little bit overwhelmed going, oh, okay. There's a lot of people here. But what I did is try to harness it to go, do you know what? I'm not the only one that feels like this. If these people are turning up, they either have experienced it or know somebody and supporting somebody. So that kind of pushed me to get onto the stage, in all honesty. Um, when I joined the stage, I was very honest and I was very vulnerable. I actually told the whole audience that I'd scrapped the script, I'd got rid of the presentation, and I was just going to talk at them about how I felt, how I found it, and what some mechanisms are for helping me. Um, I kind of went off what the audience and their reactions were, and I could see people at some point nodding really, really strongly, and some people that looked really intense, and I just wanted to go with the flow of what I thought was appealing to them really but I was very vulnerable with my experience and I was very much telling them about how I cope with it when on stage I was fine though I didn't feel like that imposter I felt like I was telling a story and helping other people um coming off stage was very overwhelming even to the point today I still find it very overwhelming it's very surreal number of people coming up to us and talking about it and saying how they've had this feeling and not been able to identify it or thought they were alone with it um even this morning waking up my LinkedIn inbox has gone absolutely crazy with the amount of people saying thank you for talking about this and I'm sat there going okay I've, I've actually done something good so that kind of puts that imposter back in the box for me today but very much on a scale of going I've actually done something for the greater good of like the recruitment community. That's what I look at. Fantastic. I would say a virtual round of applause for Lauren here um, because not only did she get up and do the talk at Wreckfest, but you actually agreed to come on uh, on Brain Food Live immediately after to talk about that sort of situation. And Lauren did this without any hesitation or persuasion from my side. It was like, okay, we're going to do it. Um, and and uh, kind of irrespective of the uh, emotional side of things, um, uh, thank you for, for doing it, first of all, Lauren, and, and very interesting that you had that like there seemed to be like a, a, an up or down sort of emotional state. So pre mm -hmm. prior and then after there were the big heights of emotion. But when you were actually doing it, you in, in, in the moment, it didn't seem yeah. to be that prominent. So that was quite an interesting phenomena. I wonder whether that's actually quite a common thing for people in public speaking. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Adam? Have you got any... I mean, you've done a lot of talks. I guess everyone's different. But uh, is that a sense that you, you normally get that once you're in it, you're okay? And uh, prior and after, it's a little bit strange. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. It's it's really difficult because it's one of those things that I've just never had a had a problem with, um, and I've never, I've just never felt like that. But I'm really respectful of people who have felt like that, and and you know. I'd like to understand a little bit more about why it happens, about why why some why this affects some people um, in the way that that it does. Um, but yes, public speaking, like especially at a big event like Wreckfest or something like that, 
is definitely one. Or coming on to Brain Food Live, to be honest, is is definitely something that people do um, get anxious about. In fact, in the recordings that I've been doing for my um, YouTube channel, people have said to me, they've come on and said, and I think it's actually all been women. It has. It's all been women who have said to me um, that that they've been nervous about doing the recording, and and you know, and then they've done so, and then they've talked about something that's really great, and um, it's it's important. It's important for everybody to kind of understand, and I don't know how we do this, but to understand that their experience is theirs and it's going to be valuable to other people because it's not anybody else's experience, I guess. Um, and so everybody's got interesting things to talk about. Just a lot of people don't realize that. I, th I think a lot of people feel the pressure of being an expert, don't they, Lauren? In the sense that, oh, yeah. um, like, what well, I get a lot, because obviously I'm going and recruiting people to come onto to Brain Food Lab all the time. Um, and, and oftentimes, the, when people say no, uh, it's because they come back to, the, with that feedback often, say, look, I don't, I'm not an expert on this. Um, and uh, they, they don't realize actually Brain Food <laughs> is not about expertise. It's just about having conversations. But in fact, most things are not about expertise. You know, um, uh, we're, we're recruiters doing jobs. Um, so we, yeah, we're expert on bits and bobs of that. Um, but we haven't solved all the problems in recruitment. Um, you know, we're just we're talking about our experience. So everyone is an expert in their own experience, I guess. Um, like that, that, that was almost exactly the words I was about to use. Everybody's an expert in their own experience. So your um what, what what you've what you've seen and heard and felt nobody can argue with that because it's it's what you've seen and heard and felt and you know everyone is different they're, they're the map's not the territory Laura, that, go ahead. sorry this is interesting actually because one of the key messages i wanted to people to take away from the talk yesterday was and i actually i think it was probably a few sentences in i said this i'm not here to cure your imposter syndrome i i haven't cured my own and i don't think you ever will because we feel we're humans we've got different emotions but what we want to do is to take away that others feel this as well and you're not the only one and how do we support each other as a community to do that because for me recruiters we've constantly got plates that are spinning and we're always looking for that perfect candidate if you don't find that perfect candidate, you then either doubt yourself or doubt the market. And it's which one comes first, in my opinion. Um, but I do think that you have to do a lot of self-development and well-being work on your own mindset. And you have to have a really supportive and psychologically safe environment to be able to voice that in. And that was one of the things I wanted people to take away yesterday. You, uh, I need to sneak this question in, Lauren, because you said something really interesting. You kind of sort of intimated again uh, just now. But was the sense of you helping others, did that help the imposter syndrome go away somewhat? Um, yes. So that you felt that actually I could help these people. And then suddenly you're shifting, your, your mindset is shifting towards I need, these people need support. And then suddenly that, the, 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 the voice as you were talking about, we telling you bad things, that's going away. It's exactly that. Yeah. And I think... I also do that in recruitment where I'm going, right, I'm helping this manager. I'm helping to find this candidate. And it's when we focus on ourselves and we invest in ourselves maybe a little bit too much. That's then when the doubt comes in. Um, and it, it doesn't matter how many times somebody says, oh, you're great or it's fine or everything will be okay. You've still got that mindset. So for me, knowing that the reason I was getting up on that stage was to support others and say, you're not alone that's what really pushed me up there because I even remember standing at the side of the stage thinking, I want to do this. I just, I, I, I want to take my shoes off and run, basically. Make it over to the car and get out of here. Mm -hmm. That was the the intensity of the feelings. 
But as soon as I saw how many people were there and the, the ladies that were supporting me were saying what a hot topic it was and people wanted to hear I was actually much more reassured, go, right, people want to hear about this. They want to hear what I've got to say. I'm not an expert, like you've said, but this is how I felt and this is how I deal with it. And this is how I think we should be approaching it. And that gave me a lot of reassurance when they were were talking through and saying it works really well. How does it link to the concept of self-esteem? Or is it completely different? I think it's separate, personally. Um, I'm a good person. I feel good about myself. But there's occasions where I'll sit there and go, God, when are they going to find out I shouldn't be able to do this job or I shouldn't be allowed to do this job? But I still value myself, which is a really strange feeling. And that's what, for me, puts me on edge, really. And it will throw me off. And I have a small support network that I know I can call and go, oh, I'm not feeling great today. And this is why. It's not normally a me thing. It's normally an overthinking of a task or an ask or can I do that? Um, I actually said in the talk yesterday, I'd seen something on a TikTok and I'm a big fan of bite-sized knowledge learning. And it was actually around imposter syndrome, which was similar to what you've both touched on about actually as people progress through their career and up the career ladder, that's when it tends to set in. And this is what the person was saying on the TikTok, but actually what they finished with is if you weren't ready for that opportunity, it would never have been presented to you. And I think that's really important for others as they move through that progression to remember to say you would not be offered that job if you weren't meeting that criteria or if you weren't capable. And hey, this is something I strongly talk to our TA team about no candidates 100% because if they are they're going to get bored and leave and not want to do that job look at that 80% and look at the development and the stretch and so as somebody gets offered that next step in their career there will be a gap and it's actually identifying what that gap is doing that self-analysis and how you support yourself so that that imposter is still going to be there but they're not as prominent or it's not crippling you to stop you from working a couple of I, things I think, here, I folks. Right. Just, so, I want. Sorry, Adam. Just I want to say a couple of things real quick. Um, firstly, uh, none of us here are on screen are trained psychologists in any way. We're not mental health professionals as well, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's a pre. That's a caveat I want to just put in there because I'm just rule out a few things that seem to be the case from what Lauren's been saying. Um, and I just want to uh, sort of underline that. Firstly, it's almost like getting out of your head, right? Because if you're helping others, you're externalizing your focus and you're saying, you know what, these people need support. It's when you're kind of sitting and stewing. I just I'm visualizing you in, in the room the night before, Laura. I'm sure you're by yourself. Like you're literally in your own head. And that obviously then spins even, is like spins even faster. So you've got to externalize. Maybe that's one technique. Uh, mm-hmm. to reduce the, 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 the volume of the imposter uh, sort of voice. Uh, externalize what you're doing. Um, and you mentioned about this idea of kind of the, the sense of discomfort of, of doing new things. Um, we shouldn't, that is actually very normal. We, 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 we have forgotten this as kids. You know, when you first took your steps as a baby, I assure you that was super uncomfortable <laughs> You know, as a little baby toddling around, but you got over it. Same when you're riding a bike, super scary when you first got on the wheels and the, the, the stabilizers came off diving into the water for the first time and swim, terrifying, driving a car, terrifying, you know, going on a date for the first time, terrifying. Um, so all of those things are new. They're terrifying, but they're not, it's normal to feel that way. Um, and that's also something we need to 
to underline as well when we do have this encounter of oh it's a weird feeling and we therefore map it to therefore that's proof that i don't belong that's not the case it's an unusual feeling because yeah. this is a new thing that you're doing and it's part of learning new things to feel that discomfiture um so anyway that's my quick analysis on that um Lauren, before we let you go, so I know you, you, you're you probably mentally maybe exhausted from all of yesterday and today. Um, having done the exercise um, and given your first talk, um, what sorts of lessons have you learned for yourself about this syndrome that you, you're going to now kind of take forward for, for yourself, maybe uh, explain to others when, uh, when you get the chance? I'm really glad you asked that because I actually put in our Zoom team chat what I'd learned from yesterday. Um, and the biggest learning for me is I went to breakfast solo. I didn't have anybody with me. I didn't really know a lot of people that were there. Um, and actually, it helped me a lot with that imposter syndrome because I sat there going, you know what, no one knows really if I'm capable of this or not. They're just trusting me to get on the stage and to do it. Um, but what I did find is that a group of strangers can be your biggest cheerleaders if they actually believe in what you want to talk about, if they've felt that. And I suppose it's actually finding that community of support because, again, if it hadn't been for the support there, I think it isn't that I wouldn't have done it when I got there, but I think I would have felt differently on stage. So for me, the, the takeaway more than anything is, one, never over-prepare because the night before you're going to chuck it all away, so it's a waste of time anyway. Um, prepare as much as you need, a few bullet points, etc. But then communicate how you feel, even if it's with strangers. If, if they want to support you, they'll show you that positive intent. They have got your best interests at heart to make sure that you do well on that stage. Um, and so for me, it was having trust in others and assuming that positive intent rather than going, oh, what if somebody thinks that I'm not very good? It was trying to flip it around. Yeah, really, really good, Lauren. Um, and and uh, uh, final point I think you mentioned is really, really important. Like you made, you were making observations as to how you felt when you're actually on stage. So, so you're not like creating this wonderful story that's totally polished, but you're actually commentating on how it is when yeah. you're up there. And that may be one other technique that we can use. Again, we're talking about the public speaking as an example, but I think you could use that in other areas of mm -hmm. wherever you feel that sense. Uh, you could just talk about, okay, this is how I'm feeling about this. And then straight away, you're observing a scenario rather than being consumed by it. Um, Lauren, thank you so much for your time. Uh, wonderful effort from yesterday. I'm really pleased that you went through and did it. Um, and, uh, and and I very much look forward to, to, to learning a little bit more uh, as you go forward in your career as well. So hopefully you'd want to come back to Brain Food and give us an update on that. Um, but thank you so much for your insights. It's, it's been absolutely excellent, uh, Lauren. No problem. Thank you for having me. What a lovely lady. Um, and I think uh, definitely loads of insights from people who are doing the direct experience of it. Um, so Anna, uh, Becca and uh, Alexei, we're going to bring you on in a minute. But before we go um, and do that, we always have a mini break in the middle of Brain Food Live. Uh, the reason for this is because Brain Food Live is a show that is a starting conversations um however we're going to come to an end and we have to come out come off air and we don't want to do that and make sure that we kill a conversation that might have more legs to go um so this is the time where we want to take your linkedin url and share it in the chat stream on crowdcast or if you're watching it on any of the the, the linkedins right now whether you're on rob walker's linkedin uh, adam gordon's linkedin alexi gates linkedin go and share your uh, linkedin url in the thread there and then connect with everyone else who's done the same 
Um, that way you can then have conversations with people that care about this topic after we come off air. Worst case scenario, you walk away from this, uh, this, this conversation uh, with 30, 40, 50 extra connections that are going to help boost your network uh, and people who are going to help you uh, uh, develop more swarm intelligence and be future friends of yours and so on. Um, okay, cool. Let's bring on our other friends here. Um, let's see where we can do it, actually. I am quite annoyed about how this thing works. Um, I'm just going to have to identify them with a hover, uh, which is just super annoying. Um, okay, there's Anna. Louise right there. Yeah, I don't know why they've done it. Um, it maybe they're not used to having lots of people um, on. Like, for instance, I can't even see Becca from here. Um, so how do I invite Becca if I can't see her? Um, maybe I can see her. In, you on... can see her in the chat. Yeah, yeah, I'll try and find her in chat. Um, yeah, she's been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, loads of people chatting now. Uh, oh, here she is. That's Becca. I can invite Becca. Yeah, cool. God, Lord. Give me a search function. Um, right. Bob, Bob's made a good comment. Bob Pulver's made a good comment in the <clears throat> on the chat, actually. Um, he, he has said fear of public speaking is definitely different than imposter syndrome. And I think it I think it can be different, although I think it I think imposter syndrome can cause a uh, fear of public speaking. So I, 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 mm. I, I think they are different, but one can cause the other. In my they, they, are, they are different, but I think public speaking is uh, kind of an ex, uh, explicit example of the phenomena, um, which, you know, I think is good as an illustrative case. Um, but let's say hello to our friends here. Anna, you're going to forgive me if I don't pronounce the second name. No, uh, I totally forgive you. <laughs> you know what? I, I usually would give it a go, but I'm totally intimidated by Polish names. And this, this is going to defeat me from there straight away. Um, no worries. So what is your from Anna? Anna, give yeah. us your, give us, you, tell us how it's pronounced. <laughs> Well, you said Anna Pokrzywka Szklarska, but in my companies, I go by Anna P.S. Anna P.S. Um, Anna, it's, a, it's brilliant to have you on the show. Uh, welcome. And can you quickly introduce yourself? Absolutely. Um, I am a sourcing operations manager at RTS People, um, a relatively small but brilliant company of people um, with a long-standing um, experience in, um, in recruitment. We are an RPO company. Um, and we operate uh, well globally with centers in the UK, Poland, Krakow, and in the US. Fantastic. Great to have you on the show, Anna. And we've got Becca here as well. Becca, great to see you. Uh, can you quickly introduce yourself? Who are you? What it is you do? Yeah, I'm Rebecca Collis. I am a senior sourcing manager at AMS. Currently working on quite a lot of projects, but was internal talent acquisition until we didn't need as much internal talent acquisition just lately. So focus on improving our options across the globe at the moment. Great stuff. Great to see you again, Becca. And uh, we have Alexi here as well. Alexi, great to see you. Uh, can you quickly introduce yourself for you, what it is you do? Yes. Hello, everybody. I hope uh, you can hear me well, Han. Yep. Perfect. Yeah. Amazing. So I'm Alexi. Actually, it's pronounced Gecht. Oh it's an Israeli <laughs> name. <laughs> it's a Gecht, yeah. And uh, I'm a talent sourcer, firstly, and also a team lead. At a company, at a small company called Added Value, it's an Israeli-based uh, company that supports the startups and scale-ups, tech, technical startups to grow, and we provide sourcing and recruitment solutions for those uh, startups to build their R&D teams. Uh, mostly working extremely hard to fill positions, and uh, yeah, I'm located actually in Israel, in Hungary, working fully remotely in a nomad way, and yeah, that's about me. 
No, great to have you on the show. And by the way, Alexi's team has been writing some wonderful blogs, by the way, which have been featured on Recruiting Brain Food newsletter. Definitely worthwhile checking out some of those mediums that they've got their publications on. Really, really good operational content. Um, okay, let's talk about it. We've heard a wonderful kind of a story from, from Lauren just now. Just a really uh, you know, timely example of someone who's had to deal with imposter syndrome um, and actually, you know, do uh, overcome it, I guess, in this situation, which we, uh, by the way, we didn't even know whether that would ha had happened because obviously it was, uh, it, it, it was only yesterday. Um, but we've all talked about imposter syndrome before. I think I've all interacted with all of uh, you before online about this topic. Um, and maybe it's worthwhile us just sort of sharing your thoughts as to what this is and, and, and what your sort of theories are as to why it exists and, and how you know, you've mitigated against it. Um, why don't we start with you, Anna? Um, you've, you've had some thoughts on this topic. Um, can you tell us a bit more about your, your theories on this and, and what have you done to, you know, techniques to overcome, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. For me, um, imposter syndrome is mostly feeling that the even when you're praised after, after doing something good, after, after delivering, you think that maybe it was luck that it wasn't actually you doing it, but it was slack or it was a super hard work and you actually don't deserve the praise. Um, so I have this feeling sometimes when I'm said that I'm told that I've done something good and I'm like, but that was easy, but that was like nothing special. How how come do you do you see me if if there's like nothing in it? Um so so this is like diminishing the achievement, yes. right? So someone's yes, complimenting absolutely. you something. Yes, absolutely. Not acknowledging, not not acknowledging the achievements. Um, that, and that's because of your good skill set, though, isn't it? That's because you're excellent. Well, at I what hope. You do. <laughs> I hope that's that why it's easy. It's the that, only reason it's easy. I hope that that, that might be, but also a feeling of um, being inappropriate. Um, like, why am I chosen to 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 do this task? What, what have I done in the past? Or why do they think I, I have the skills? But um, as it was said before, if you've chosen, if you've been chosen, if you've been asked to do something, so the, the requester has some basis, right? Um, for me, I have been super lucky in my professional life um, to have great managers. Um, ones who believed in me and ones who supported me and ones who I've learned so much from. Um, but that's all I would say with the benefit of a hindsight. So you look at a certain situation and you feel, yeah, actually it was good. Actually he was right. Um, but in the moment, I think it's, it's, it's super, it's super difficult and uh, <laughs> super interesting, uh, because, um, you've invited me to this uh, to this um, brain food and i was so super happy and then this last week was super difficult at work and i was like oh my god what am i doing why am i here and um knowing that i will be here i took a step back and and i was like what is in these tasks that i can learn from how can i divide them into parts and, and break it down and to really like deliver, you know, it was for something I was doing for my CEO. So it's not a, not a tiny thing. Right. Um, and, and I did it and I did it with help and I wasn't afraid to ask for this help. And I think that this is also something I'm quite proud of, like being mature enough to ask for help. 
Yeah, really. So a couple of things you mentioned there, really interesting. So how do we spot imposter syndrome? It may it may not be obvious. Like, we, like as you say, we, we, we may habitually minimize an achievement that should be a signal to us that actually you're, you're suffering something like imposter syndrome because that's not an accurate analysis of that of that scenario. Um, so perhaps we've developed some bad mental habits over time uh, that kind of have us do that. I, I tend to reject praise as well. I mean, that's kind of a, a, some sort of esteem issue, I guess, at some point. Um, and we need to learn how to accept praise and criticism in equal measure, right? It's like, can you treat the, um, uh, uh, the commentary on, on your behavior uh, as, as authentic? And then, uh, you know, don't, don't try and dispute it, <laughs> whatever that may be. Um, and I guess you may also feel a, a imposter syndrome more acutely when you feel overwhelmed. So let's say there's a big uh, out, out of the normal project. Uh, again, usually something you haven't done and it's maybe a little bit beyond your skills uh, entirely. Um, then the internal dialogue may start spinning, um, at which point, you know, it might just be very debilitating. And in fact, what you've got to do is try and break the problem down, get support as you need to fix it. Um, and again, externalize, like get it out of your head. Um, very interesting, Anna. Um, Becca, let's go to you on this. Um, I can't remember when we had this dialogue about this topic. It might have been actually on one of the threads online or so. Um, um, but but I, I'm, I'm sure you've got some like very strong mm -hmm. thoughts on this um, as to uh, what imposter syndrome is and where, 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 how it starts. I mean, is it something that you, we mistrain kids on, do you think? Or uh, do you think there's, 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 a, there's another reason why it occurs in some people, not others, or more prominently in some people uh, uh, compared to others? It's a really big subject, Hung, um, for me, this one. But I think because I was thinking about how I was going to tackle this, because there's so many ways I could come at this subject, personal experience, other people's experience. And I thought I'd centre on the thing that's really resonated with me as, as highly as any of them, which is people coming into my team. So last year or the year before, we were recruiting very heavily. And a lot of the people we brought into our team were ex-high street recruiters, so worked in commercial recruitment agencies. Commercial recruitment agencies very often, still to this day in the UK, are places where one month you can be employee of the month, two months later you're on managing performance, then you're back up to employee of the month, then you've dipped back down again. And because of the ebb and flow of that, I think recruiters in particular get, particularly when they've been in agency recruitment, get knocked so often that they don't actually know whether the praise is real. And so they doubt the conversations they're having. And because also, when you get into leadership roles, people aren't often trained on radical candor. They're not really trained on how to coach, actually coach, rather than give people answers. And because they don't tackle those two subjects, we don't have meaningful discussions with people where we show that we're empathetic, but we're also going to give them the truth. Um, and we're equally not capable necessarily of avoiding giving advice when actually that person may have the answers themselves it damages their confidence. Amazing uh, 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 insight there. I mean, we've all been agents, I think, right? Um, so I, you, uh, having just heard you describe that oscillating uh, sort of experience of a, of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a recruitment agency, that is actually really, maybe it is a, a component of imposter syndrome. It kind of accelerates it within it, our community because our emotional states are obviously going like this based on, you know, how many deals of it. Um, and it is more, so perhaps the cutthroat nature of the uh, the job itself kind of creates a, a sense of this. Uh, what an interesting observation that is, um, uh, Rebecca. Um, 
in terms of your you as a manager leading a team, and I address all of you here because I think all everyone here does some leadership or has some responsibilities for it. Um, how do you handle it where you feel a, a an employee of yours has imposter syndrome and it's actually damaging that person's uh, own development and own performance because of that sense of you know uh, artificial effects uh, and false sense of uh, uh, of self-sabotage how do you help that person without kind of exacerbating the issue um i wonder whether we could go to alexia on this one because i know you lead a team uh, and again without identifying names and what have you but have you encountered someone particularly um uh, that you feel maybe has this uh, sense and, and what do you do as a manager about it it's a, it's a great question because uh, i think when we talked with you Hank, about this uh, to join this show it was when i was uh, sending you some articles for uh, publishing on medium and uh, that's when it came up that uh, I, I felt really that uh, people on the team are really, really bright, extremely smart, has super, super good skills also in what they do, but also writing, but in a way shy, or I, I thought it's shy. Actually, before you invited me to the, to the show, I didn't even know that there is a syndrome called imposter. Just, <laughs> I thought people are more, more shy. And, and I felt like uh, helping them, providing them the stage, providing them like positive feedback and doing things really slowly, step by step, can really make a, a huge uh, impact. Yeah, uh, just to give a bit of context to this, basically, Alexi's team, none of them have sent me their their their, their, their work. Uh, it's Alexi that's done it on their behalf, I think, without their without their particular knowledge. Um, and I've read it and I've said, you know, without sort of having any relationship with uh, uh, the company or the, the authors, they were just really good posts and they just went up there. Um, but but why did they not send directly to me? They read the newsletter. They know that, I, that this is how I source. Um, so I guess they felt it wasn't worthy. Um, and it's exactly. like, you know, just send it in. Um, it may not get in. I can't guarantee that. Um, but it's not like a verdict on quality. Um, it's just the case of, look, you've written this. This is important to you. Great. Share it with me. Maybe I'll take a look. Um, and in fact, they, it, they have gone in more, more times than others. So, yeah, maybe a manager then takes a responsibility of perhaps, you know, positioning um, or, or giving them the opportunity to kind of um, overcome uh, the, the the syndrome simply by creating an opportunity for them, uh, giving them some exposure. Some risk to that, though, I think, isn't there? Because it might go wrong. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that method of management, Becca? Uh, any thoughts on this? On managing imposter syndrome? Yeah, like person you've yeah. got in the team, you feel, you know what, um, we could really help this person, but how do you as a manager you know, do that without any harm? So from my perspective, we, like I said, we had a lot of people in our team. That brand new team literally was from three people to 34 last June at one point. And the whole team was so full of people with, <laughs> with symptoms of imposter syndrome. And the way that we tackled that was very much in a kind of a, a program of events rather than one specific fix. So one was actually coaching those people one-to-one, -one, having those conversations whereby it was like, well, so how do you think you did? What do you think you could do differently? Making them articulate it. They got annoyed with it very much like Sarah was alluding to there. It's very annoying when somebody asks you and makes you feel vulnerable. But when you feel vulnerable and you're, and you're actually able to get past that with somebody that you know has your best interests at heart, you can start to change the internal dialogue because imposter syndrome for me, what I know of it, again, no medical background, is 
to do with the pro it's to a lot of it's to do with the programming in your brain it's past experiences and playing the wrong videos you're playing the videos that reinforce the feelings and the feelings then bring on the anxiety and yada 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 and it builds and so what we work to do was to people as i say don't know whether praise is real or not so making sure that when we did praise it was for specific things that they'd done really well that we could praise for and then so we positively reinforced the good where there were things which were not you know not good behaviors we focused instead on solving the problem rather than tackling someone's failure or mistake because the reality is all that really matters is a solution and then looking at the repetition avoidance so by building that into their everyday and weaving that through the team and connecting the team which was a huge challenge with a fully remote team but building a proper collaborative connected workforce meant that they got someone else to lean on so when they weren't sure and they wanted a bit of reassurance somebody else was there to say, you know what, mate, you've done a really good job with that. And so if there wasn't their manager available to do that or the team leads available to do that, they could equally bolster each other. And that created such an incredible safe space for them that we saw so many people come out top side of this. So many people also, as a side effect of it, able to bring up where they had had mental health challenges and posting that on LinkedIn, which I think often the two coincide within a lot of people where you're you're struggling with imposter syndrome at the same time as you're struggling with well what's my worth in the world in that case as well so trying to get people to align all of that and trying to get team leaders and the whole team to to work together and to enjoy company because we're so disconnected now as a workforce very often creating spaces where people can just have those water cooler moments or they can have a drunk Tuesday night or they can have a Friday where they just bitch about whatever it is they want to bitch about creating that environment I think starts to make people feel again that connection because I think a lot of imposter syndrome in or the escalation in recent years is being fueled by the fact that we're remote and you're not getting that reward and confidence that actually the work you're doing is worthy and it is actually delivering Rebecca you just said like amazing <clears throat> monologue there um <laughs> Seriously, there's three things uh, that I want to isolate um, uh, that you mentioned that are so important. Uh, firstly, um, the, the the idea that feedback needs to be precise um, uh, on, uh, on uh, onto the thing. So you people don't trust praise because of this experience we have being an agency. Okay, great. We need to recreate that trust by being very precise with when things have gone well. Just say directly. So it's got to be timely. It's got to be right, right there and then. And you've got to talk, be very narrow as a manager and say, "Look, this is why it's great." Tell them, tell them all of that. The second point that was really interesting was that where there has been an error, a human error, whatever it might be, that's great. Recognize the error, but fix the problem rather than admonish the individual um, because, you know, you got to fix the problem first. And hopefully the individual recognized that that was obviously something they shouldn't have done um, and trust them enough to go and, and, and avoid the repetition. If they do repeat it, that's when a manager does need to play a role um, in coaching that person um, uh, 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 away from those behaviors. But primary focus is focused on the resolution of the issue. Um, and the third thing you mentioned was this concept of kind of co-management, co-support. So it's not a great thing if the manager is the only point that can provide this support to the team. Because at some point, you're going to basically run out of capacity or you're going to end up helping one person more than the other simply because of circumstance or wherever it might be. And it's going to be basically a, a, a brittle system. Uh, we've got to try and create a group support system 
which is a safe space for people to articulate their feelings so that they can get support from other people uh similar to as lauren mentioned earlier like they can get support from other people to come in uh, rather than just themselves so it fixes itself it's almost like self-healing concrete uh very very important stuff um and i, I want to go to you because you mentioned something really interesting in the comments you said yeah it's just like a sort of a sort of training kids i mean how much is it I mean, it, 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 some of this does feel like it is like kind of raising ch children, isn't it? Without, you know, assuming sort of the wrong analogy of, of boss and, and, and worker being in any way maternalistic or paternalistic, but it is about a more experienced person trying to training the person to evolve and grow to the point where they're kind of self-reliant and, and, and able to operate independently. Um, and uh, as, as a parent, I mean, do you feel that that helps you as a manager or a leader having had parental experience? I mean. Yeah, actually, when, when you ask about it, I, I think I do because I am able to understand the emotions um, or, um, or behavior that is behind someone's mistake or someone's um, actually good performance. Um, you know, when, when you have kids, you have to be able to put yourself in the, in their shoes to understand what the, you know, um, the end of the world of a five-year-old comes from. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, recruiters are sometimes like children. Um, but I also think that it's, um, what Becca said about, um, safe space, what you, what you said is super important, not only to be there to, to praise, and to show mistakes and work together on them. But it's also what I find important is to give people space to vent, just to listen to their complaints, but to make them feel that they have been listened, they have been heard, they have been seen. Yeah. So the, the point there, by the way, folks, what Anna's <clears> saying <throat> is that you don't necessarily need to always try and solve. The, the, the issue, it may not be a solvable issue, but you need to recognize the person has articulated this, has felt this, and you've got to say, yep, I hear what you're saying. Um, because oftentimes, uh, some of those problems are just the sense they're not being recognized or heard in some way. Um, and that is classic parental, that's classic management. Um, I think there is something in there, um, simply because I remember as a kid, or I, you observe any kids, they, they kind of catastrophize very easily, right? There's a small thing that goes wrong and it's like complete disaster, mega tantrum. Um, and we can see sort of maybe that's an element of imposter syndrome in some way. It's a related kind of feel where some small thing might occur and suddenly it becomes like a huge issue. And in fact, it's just a mountain out of a molehill. And as an older person, as a manager, a parent or a leader, um, your job is to make sure that actually it's not as catastrophic as you might imagine. Um, can, can I ask? Yeah, can I ask all of our guests? Do we think that imposter syndrome is something that is more prevalent within our industry than it is in other or our profession than it is in other professions, or do we think it's similar right across the board? I think it's similar. I just think recruiter has more stage and they're more seen, so that's maybe shown a bit more. But in my in my experience and how I feel, it's it's everywhere, all around us. I agree with that. I think recruiters have more stage, as you put it. And I, I, I do think that it would, for somebody with imposter syndrome, recruiting would seem like an unlikely profession for them to go to, um, would be, you know, a bit of irony on that because they're kind of performing a lot. You know, they're, they're in every interview, they are um, achieving influence and they've, 
you know, got to create an impression and they're, they're on, they're on stage. Um, but at the same time, I, Becca's point around, I think like commercial recruitment agencies and that star of the month, one month, and then performance managed the next. And I can see that in a lot of different recruitment, uh, agency environments. And, uh, that's not going to be good for somebody's, um, you know, Good, good, and bad. I, mean, I think it's 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 one of those that definitely would cause psychological stress. But there's also a kind of a brutalist argument to say, you know what, um, the, the people that make it through that type of horrendous kind of journey will will come out stronger. Um, I'm not sure whether that's in, uh, sort of entirely true, but they they may come out with a survivor instinct, but they probably still have that internal doubt, if you like. You know, I, I, I think the uh, the the observation that you don't trust the praise is is actually a very very profound one to think about, um, folks. We're running well over time, I'm afraid to say, so we have to kind of bring it to a close at this point. Um, I wanted to leave the guests with a final word on uh, how you would sort of advise someone um, to overcome imposter syndrome. Um, uh, what is the one piece of advice that you would give? We heard from Lauren, uh, one of the things that she said that, you know, go uh, to the shift towards a support others type mindset and get yourself out of your head. And that was one technique. Um, what are the techniques you think might be useful uh, for other people to learn? Um, Anna, let's go with you on that. For me, it would be surrounding yourself with like a safety net of people, with great managers, um, and if you don't have the luck to have those great managers, then choose your coworkers that you can trust and that um, that can support you and can be your cheerleaders along the way. Yeah, absolutely. How about you, Alexei? I would say for me, it's like a holistic approach. It's not one thing, so it's hard to, to choose one. But I would go with Anna and I would say um, have supportive people, but not only professionally, also personally in your life, like friends, family people who surround you that give you positive feedback on every small success. For example, I'm super lucky with my wife. Every small thing that I do good, even if I pick some small thing at the car, she say, wow, you're so amazing. And I feel like during the years, it's something that really helped me deal with this, uh, with this phenomenon. Fantastic. How about you, Becca? Two things. One, well, two key things, apart from everything that everyone else has said, which is completely true, um, journaling. But journaling where you don't reread what you've written and you don't correct the sentence structure, you literally just brain fart, sorry for the language, everything that you're thinking that particular day or week and you discipline yourself to do it daily or weekly. In tandem with that, you also create a list of achievements each month. So every single month you have to document the things that you're proud of that month that you've actually done. It can be done weekly, it can be done daily depending on how severe the imposter syndrome is. But sticking with those two single things means that you've got something to go back to, to actually, when you're feeling challenged and you're undermining yourself, you go back and you reread and go, crikey, I've come a long way. The journaling one in particular, I think, is very, very powerful. Very, very good. These are great techniques, folks. Um, and like I say, I don't think you have to be a mental health expert or, or a psychiatrist in any way to, to be able to adopt some of these things and kind of just experiment with them yourself and see whether they may help. Uh, so if you feel if you have... Uh, some sort of imposter syndrome or if you have some sort of self uh, self-limiting beliefs let's say um, that are not accurate then some of these ideas might be worth you practicing and putting into place um okay um let's we have to finish the show here at this point folks so let's say thank you and goodbye to anna um alexei and becca great to see you guys um uh, we will say goodbye to you here 
Um, and we're going to have to close the show off, folks. I think we're back next week. I forget what we're doing. Yes, we are. We are talking about, oh, we're talking about fractional working. What the heck is fractional working, folks? Have you heard of a fractional CTO? Um, have you heard of a fractional HR person? Have you heard of a fractional recruiter? If you haven't, go and search for it on internet, particularly on LinkedIn. And actually, you'll generate a lot of people that are now calling themselves fractional something or other. What is fractional working? Uh, why is this emerging? How is it different from being a freelancer? And we as recruiters, how do we deal with this? Do we actually start thinking about developing recruitment processes to hire someone that is operating fractionally with our business? Right now, we're just fixated on full-time work. Uh, is the future going to be a lot more diverse in terms of contractual type? In which case, we had better get busy understanding who fractional workers are and how we may uh, recruit them. Uh, sign up to the, follow the channel, folks. Sign up to the show. Uh, we'll see you next week on that. Thanks for watching. Cool. That was all right, wasn't it, mate? Yeah, very good. Uh, really important subject. One mm. which, um, I, I, to me, the very, very most important aspect to this is if we understand why we're feeling a certain way, let's say it's imposter syndrome or it's something else. If we understand why we're feeling that way, we can put a name to it and then we can go on TikTok and find out what it's all about. Um, <clears throat> then we know ourselves a lot better. And we, when we know ourselves a lot better, um, you know, life is, life is considerably uh, easier. Um, easier, but it is considerably, um, when, you, when you know yourself and why you're feeling certain ways, then you know what to look for to do something about it. And if you don't know what it is, you're in the dark and you may never get out of the dark. Yeah, we, we name your demons, as they say. Um, uh, it helps kind of just control what can be an overwhelming emotion and uh, different people feel different ways. But again, Lauren's story was really quite vivid um, in the sense that, you know, up until getting on stage talking about imposter syndrome, she was thinking about legging it and going to the, you know, uh, going to the car park and driving away. Um, so, so that is a sense of overwhelmingness. This, that's, that's not just butterflies in the stomach. Um, that's overwhelming. Um, and if you're able to just label it in some way, you might be then be able to control it, maybe even observe it and then, and then deal something with it. So, um, so yeah, very important to have, uh, the, the language, uh, to be able to handle it. Okay, cool. Listen, um, that's it. What are you doing there this week? Mate? You're still in France, aren't you? You're still just chilling out or what? I mean, doing more videos. So what, what's your plan? It's, uh, it's uh, L'Etape du Tour tomorrow morning. So oh. the, the, one of the, um, every year, they open up one of the stages of the Tour de France and they let amateur riders come and, uh, you know, you've got to pay to do it and you come in and do it. And there's 15,000 people and the stage that they've chosen is <clears throat> the one that's passing past here um, on the main Tour de France in eight days. So tomorrow morning, we'll get up and go and uh, watch all these amateurs, 15,000 amateurs doing this mountain stage. It's going to be absolutely brutal. I think it's, there's going to be all, all shapes and sizes on it. And uh, we'll just give them some, you know, cheer them on tomorrow morning. That'll be carnage as well. I mean, <laughs> there'll be loads of crashes and loads There'll of be people again. walking and. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just, I, I, I reminds me of some of the riders that we know, friends of ours that, you know, people like Bas van der Hattard and uh, Oscar Maga and uh, Michael Blakely, stuff like that. People who do a lot of bike riding, they're probably totally up for this type of stuff. So, uh, uh, yeah, no, I think, about, I think most of them are proper, proper riders, absolutely. Like those guys, I think they do it a lot. And uh, I think uh, it's going to be, it's going to be fun to go and watch. And actually, the main thing is for me is working out how, are we, where are we going to park so that, 
in eight days when we go and watch the main tour, I know where to park so we don't have like a mountain trek in order to find somewhere yeah. um, where we can stand and, and watch it and cheer them all on. That's your task to scout That's my driving task. spot. Yeah, Scouting. yeah. Cool, yeah. cool. Sounds like a good weekend, Adam. Uh, enjoy, enjoy. Hopefully we'll catch up soon, mate. Um, if not, we'll see you next week on Friday, right? Cheers, Adam. See you soon. Take it easy. Ah, good Lord, I've got one more call to do. And then it's like, yeah, sleep. Um, I'll see you next week. Thanks for watching, folks. Have I stopped the recording and the broadcast? There we go.